Let's go. You are listening to Dollars and Sensibility, the podcast that explores the numbers, concepts, and behaviors that shape your financial life. Hosts, business partners, and friends Bill McBride and Andrew Martz are financial advisors in Hollywood, California, that for a combined 35 years have helped thousands of individuals and businesses better their financial futures. Here, they want to open these discussions to you, the listener, share the many things they have learned, and of course, how to be sensible about your dollars. We are back, Bill. It is good to see you. It's another Friday, and this is from the feed, Dollars and Sensibilities. It's been a while since we've done one of these. It has. It has, and a lot has transpired. I felt like it's almost been too long, and now it was hard to even come up with topics because this probably could have been a three-hour episode. But let's, as we normally do, focus on the important stuff. And immediately, I mean, this is happening right now, this week. The article comes from the Wall Street Journal, but it was the announcement heard around the world. The Fed lifts interest rates by a half a point, and it is the biggest hike since two. Thousand. Okay, so Fed, Jerome Powell, the Federal Reserve Committee, and they are lifting benchmark interest rates, which really dictate interest rates all over the economy, right? This, this determines how much we pay to pay on mortgages, to borrow, to buy homes. This is going to dictate auto loans. It's going to dictate businesses being able to borrow and grow and expand businesses. So really all borrowing costs are to some extent tied to this target rate by that's set by the Fed. But borrowing costs, Andrew, as well as savings rates, right? So that's the flip side of the Fed raising interest rates. So, you know, who are you? Uh, as an individual investor or as an institution, and which way do you want this to go? While the individual investor has an optimistic and a pessimistic way to look at it, if you want to refi your home, well, you missed the boat, right? Because a rise in interest rates by the Fed is going to be a rise in mortgage rates. On the flip side, a rise in interest rates by the Fed is also going to increase your savings account rate. Now, the Fed knows this when they do that, obviously, and they do it for reasons which we'll get into. But that savings account rate, it's very odd to me, Andrew, as I, as I look at the past five years, seven years, where people just, I, I've told people to close their savings accounts. It's, they've been worthless, right? But now we might even see a savings account that's paying 1%, whereas four months ago, it was paying 0. 0.04, okay? And that's a, that's a huge jump, but is it significant enough and what are the effects of savings account rates being higher on the stock market? So I, I think that's what this Wall Street Journal article is kind of getting at. Yeah. So that's a good point. And I think the question a lot of people are asking is, is this good? Is this bad? Should we be concerned? And there, it is not good or bad. It just is. And we have to think about the perspective that you're taking here. Now, the one argument I make about the savings rate thing is that savings rates are going to be lagging in relation to how quickly you're going to see the rates go up at your your local savings credit union whereas mortgage rates are changing immediately so that impact right if you if you tried to lock in a rate last week a week ago so last friday you waited and kind of sat on your hands and then called your mortgage broker and locked it in this friday your rate is probably somewhere to the 
tune of about a half a point or maybe even a, a full point higher today, that is significant where your savings account interest rate at Bank of America has not changed in the last week. So those, those will take a little bit more time to, to catch up in, in the marketplace. It, the mortgage rates, Andrew, are very odd because I've been following this very closely for, for a number of reasons, but the mortgage rates, when they climb with a Federal Reserve rate increase, while it's, it's incremental and it's not uh, in proportion, meaning that mortgage rates also go by not only the Fed rate, but the 10-year treasury. And we'll get into leading indicators and lagging indicators, but it's also a leading indicator, meaning that the Fed forecasted this increase. The mortgage people said, hey, the Fed's going to raise rates. They already started raising rates prior to Wednesday of this week. So it... <laughs> Yes, it will go up a little bit, but there was no surprise. And I think that is what uh, we expect most from the Fed and we expect most from the stock market, or at least what we desire. We desire no surprises. The stock market, the economy doesn't like surprises. And and the Fed's actions have been forecasted well enough in advance that there shouldn't be any surprises. Now, what we see, though, is unfortunately uh, some big swings in the market. And you tell me, why do you think that is? With all these things being led into, we've got these leading indicators. All the mortgage brokers know to raise their rates. The Fed says we're going to raise rates a half a percent. Where's the surprise, right? Why all all the movement in the markets? I, I got my answer, but I'm Which I think is probably, probably similar. So right. before I answer that question directly, the, the other thing that you have to really think about is, well, why is the Fed doing this, right? So if you haven't caught up to that part of the story yet, right, we have inflation numbers are much higher. Home prices are moving up, gas, cost of groceries, everything. And inflation is a real issue, particularly from long-term planning perspectives, right? If you are planning to retire in the next five to 10 years, or if you are retiring this year or two years into your retirement, you've projected what your expense and income needs are going to be over the next 25 to 30 years. And you've probably accounted for some level of inflation if you've done this in conjunction with a planner and or have the tools to be able to do that. And historically, inflation has been two and a half, three percent, three and a quarter, somewhere in that range. And you can use kind of any variance within that to kind of calculate and project. Here's what that what life is going to cost me in in the future. Now, all of a sudden, you get this dramatic increase in inflation. Prices are rising so much and wages have not yet caught up. Asset prices have not yet caught up. And there's a real concern from a planning perspective that the stress test and the integrity of your retirement income could be totally broken, right? 5% inflation for 30 years versus 3% inflation for 30 years is a dramatic difference and is likely to be the deal breaker for, I would, I would argue, 70 to 75% of financial plans. So... To answer your question, is this a surprise or why are are we surprised? And I would have to look at the media and the 24-7 information news cycle that, that we live on. So media is filling the airwaves with kind of this notion of like the uncertainty and un 
the unexpected to come. They're throwing around recessions. They're throwing around crashes and they want people to focus on all the things that could possibly go wrong. But the reality is you and I know that the evidence just doesn't seem to support that type of scenario. Now, first of all, let's just let the, the elephant in the room speak for a second. We may be in a recession, but there's no way for anybody to ever know that until it's already happened, right? So right. you can't define a recession until you've experienced it. So technically, by the textbook definition, could we be in recession? Sure. This this may be it. This may be what it feels like. Markets are down anywhere between ten on the Dow Jones index, you know, twenty on the Nasdaq. So let's call it fifteen percent, which is about what the S and P five hundred is down year to date. So certainly we're feeling some of this volatility, but the action by the Fed this week I think was pretty smart, right? Raise it a half a percent instead of the the normal quarter of a percent. Everyone's focusing. Oh, they haven't done this in twenty two years. Well, that's fine. It, it was better than the seventy five basis points that they were speculating that we're needing. The other really important thing is they're going to allow some of the assets on their balance sheet to mature and they're not going to start to repurchase. So what, what does that mean in, in layman's terms? Think about all of us who received checks in the last 24, 25 months because of the COVID pandemic. So in the CARES Act, the US government essentially printed trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars and handed those out in the forms of stimulus checks and or loans that by for many business owners were forgiven and didn't have to be repaid. So we've got all of this stimulus heading into the, the economy. What happened? It worked. It sped the economy back up. And we're seeing the results of that through great market returns, housing market that's absolutely on fire. Now, the Fed and the government has to slow all of this economic activity down before we hit a, a place where asset prices run too much and we just simply can't control it anymore. So by doing this, it leaves them mechanisms in the future that if we need to help stimulate because of a hard landing or because of too, too high inflation and we got to bring interest rates back down or we have to create more stimulus through monetary policy, they're going to have those tools available to them. So I thought this was a pretty smart move by by the Fed right now. But the fear mongering, I would 100% blame on traditional media. So the 30,000 foot view, Andrew, of this, what we're talking about is monetary policy. Now, you mentioned the, the media and sort of the emotional investing that goes on in reaction to the Fed's moves. Monetary policy sounds like it's complex. It's multivariant. It's a very complex uh, set of words. What it what falls under that umbrella is really these Fed interest rate hikes, uh, the state of the stock market, inflation, and I, I think we nailed it, or you nailed it. We're talking about the Fed raising interest rates to combat inflation that is a result of overgrowth in uh, demand brought about by stimulus. So we talked dozens of episodes ago about those stimulus checks and how 25% of people actually use that money not to buy milk, bread, or gas. They use that money to buy uh, stocks. They use that money to invest, right? They yep. use that money to build their portfolio. So now, fast forward, no wonder, right? There's, there was, and, and look, let's, let's say a little thank you, right? Those stimulus checks helped people stay alive. You can't discern as a government 
and say, hey, this person is probably only going to you know, invest in cryptocurrency if we give them a check for 600 bucks, but this person is about to be homeless if we don't, right? You can't- right. You, you can't make you those to, decisions. Exactly. So under monetary policy, you give everybody the checks. This is what happens, right? And it, I'm not saying what's, what is good and what is bad. That was a couple episodes ago, right? <laughs> it's both, right? So the Fed's doing this monetary policy movement to, to get things back to quote unquote normal, their target of inflation. And they even, they even came out and said previous to this interest rate hike that they're not, they're not delusional about getting inflation back to two and a half percent next week. It's going to be 4.6% by 2023. And they're hoping to get it down to three by 2024. That's, I, I, that's a reasonable expectation, but we, we, now we know the reasons. We know we're, we're talking about monetary policy. And why is the market going crazy when the Fed didn't do anything that they, they didn't say they were going to do, right? They, they didn't lie and there was no uncertainty. And let's segue everything you were talking about, Andrew, into what I just said. It's that emotional investing reaction. The Fed comes out and says, hey, we're going to raise rates like we said we were going to. The market went nuts in the morning before they said it. In the afternoon, it made a huge rally. You know, the next day, it's down in the morning. You know, it, it, and I, I would say that this, the reason for this is because people don't understand monetary policy and the complexities involved. We simplified it, right? Hey, inflation's out of hand. You raise rates, keep, you know, give people a better opportunity, right? And then blah, blah, blah. But the fact is people look at their investment accounts and they might have that financial plan. They might say, hey, you know what? Uh, I'm going to retire in 15 years and I'm going to have X amount of dollars based on a growth rate of 7% and an inflation rate of two and a half. And yeah, it's, it's off by now, but it doesn't stop the brain from looking at your portfolio down 5% in a day and thinking something must be done. I have to react. I know I had a proactive portfolio, but for some reason, I can't take this. I knew that these dark days would come and I know that they're going to be here forever. We're always going to have down days in the market, mm -hmm. some worse than others. But that, that to me is the only rational explanation of why we've seen so much volatility. And here's, here's something you can really learn from everything that's happening today. Put everything into like economic context, right? So we're talking about these siloed variables of inflation and interest rates, which we know is just one part of a very large equation. And there's already comparisons being made to 2008 because of what's happening in housing right now. Once interest rates go up and then the housing market's going to crash. And, but the reality is the data just doesn't support that type of scenario. While any and all of it is possible, I would argue it's just not probable. So you look at first the health of the consumer. Look at the data. Consumers are spending. You've had a, a very, very vibrant and healthy consumer market. 
household debt has dramatically declined over the last 10 to 15 years and has remained relatively low. Some of that is due to better lending standards. Some of that is due to just smarter consumer decision making. You have a, a low unemployment with a really robust like job market, there's, there's still a lot of vacancies, so there's there's room for, for more employment. We've talked about how some of that was due to the great resignation and retirees starting to retire early. Maybe we see some of these people enter back into to the workforce full and or part-time. Manufacturing remains healthy. So you start to put all of this into to context and you, you start to think about the, the future of the American economy. And I would say it, it looks pretty healthy. So what can individuals learn from, from what's going on right now? Well, in financial planning, our encouragement is always get off the roller coaster. Do not take the rides on the highs, highs, and the lows, lows. Well, look at just the last couple of years. It's constant high highs. Go back to 2021, late 2020, and it was the frenzy of greed, right? We were all looking to get yeah. in on the, the next cryptocurrency, the next meme stock, the next tie flyer, the next, you know, SPACs were a hot thing for three, four, five months. Uh, so all of this easy, quick, fast cash opportunity that was frenzied. We were getting phone calls left and right, answering questions on the podcast. And I mean, this was dominating conversations. So you have a period of extreme greed. And now we're starting to find we're in this period of extreme fear, right? Recessions are coming, high interest rates, housing market's going to crash. But it's like, well, I don't think that that's really likely either. This, this is what it feels like, right? 15% down in the market and people are still kind of going about their business and doing their things and spending and buying homes and investing and saving for retirement. Like this is what market cycles feel like, though the sentiment would have you believe otherwise. Well, let's let's address that 15% number. Doesn't matter whether that's off by three or four percent, right? right? Let's just say 15%. What we're saying, Andrew, is that the market is down 15% year to date. Correct. But we're also saying by saying that, just by coincidence or maybe by design in the media, is we're off 15% from our highs. Highs. Yep. <laughs> Come on. Two years ago. I mean, and, and therein lies the other problem of, of what you alluded to with the greed. In 2020, in March of 2020, some cooler heads that prevailed said, hey, let's buy some Moderna stock. Let's buy some, let's buy some of this pandemic stock. Now, when you got that Moderna, right, and you bought it at 60 bucks and it shot up to 350, right, what did you say to yourself? And, and I'm, it's rhetorical or just putting it out there. Right. You think Did you're you sell genius. it? Did you sell it? Yeah. It's I'm a genius. To, it's going to 500. It, exactly. And therein lies where the greed really gets you, right? It pulls back, goes down to 240 and et cetera, et cetera. You know, you're still up. If you bought it in 2020, you're still up 150% as of, as of today. But things have changed. Is that a part of your long-term portfolio? Did you buy that for funsies or did you buy it to make, to make your retirement, right? Well, you look, a lot of people have a, a small portion of their portfolio that they say, hey, I can risk this money with, with undue risk and, and then, you know, I'm going to keep this money separately. But a lot of people uh, convolute the two. Sure. They, they, they say, hey, you know what? Moderna is a big, big company. And I'm not picking on Moderna. I'm just using that as an example of something that- You could pick out 50 stocks that have had the same plight. 
Zoom, Moderna, all, all that, you know, even, even your Amazons and your Apples and your Teslas, you know, the things that shot up during the beginning days of the pandemic, did you sell them? Now, I, I also want to, you mentioned, Andrew, and I think this is important, unemployment. You mentioned unemployment and unemployment rate right now is 3.6%. Total unemployed people, 6 million. Unemployment insurance claims, 1.6 million. How, how long has it been? And you know, I'm not going to call you on this, but I, I haven't seen these numbers in a headline or in a news article come up on my feed in months. Yep. Why? Because they're superb. They're, these, are, these are the numbers that monetary economists just you know, dream about. And why are we not seeing those? Again, it all goes back to what are we filling our eyes and ears with and, and how does that affect our decision-making? And like you said, Andrew, I, I think the bottom line is fundamentally the U.S. economy is strong. The stock market is having short-term emotional reactions to these monetary policies that have been giving leading indicators for years and years, right? And, and, and the markets are, are smart. They're smarter than us. They're smarter than us individually, right? Because they in, are- In the long term. Correct. So- okay. Well, even in the short term, because I think that the, the, both the bond and the stock market has priced many of these variables into it as we are receiving confirmation of rate hikes and inflation numbers and employment and unemployment and everything else. So, you know, most people are, are looking at this so reactionary when really there's, th this has already been priced into to stocks. People are speculating on this and you're seeing that now play out into the marketplace. So to at this point in the game to start to completely abandon all of your fundamental planning elements, investing, keep adding to the markets, keep saving for retirement, keep spending at the same rate, maybe adjust for, for future expenses. That's, that's something you have to do individually. But the point is responding short term to these news events is always going to hurt you in the long run. Always. Unless you're contrarian about it. And more times than not, the contrarian view of these things because the majority of people are so caught up in what you were just talking about. The contrarian view can be a little bit beneficial, right? Warren Buffett, blood in the streets, that's when you buy. That's right. We'll get to him in a, in, in a minute here. But first, but first, yes. can we please just catch up on the Elon Musk saga? We have to touch uh, on this on a From the Feed episode. It's been too long, been covering a lot of great topics. But my gosh, the last four or five weeks of not only the, the wealthiest person in the world, but arguably the most influential person in the world, Elon Musk, the Twitter saga. Let's let's catch let's catch up. Get some hot takes on this. Can I can I say my closing argument on this? Sure. I'm going to be I'm going to be pissed if he doesn't end up buying it. <laughs> Like I can't, if he's just stringing us along for the, you know, the notoriety or whatever, like I, I'm sure he's serious, but you know, either way, um, I'm with it. Team Musk. Uh, so here, let's recap what has happened. Okay. Uh, early April, he starts to acquire a significant position in Twitter, winds up acquiring 9.2% stake in all of, uh, Twitter shares. That's April 4th. The next day, it's announced that he's going to snag a seat on the board of Twitter. 
five days after that, he will no longer be joining Twitter board. By the way, all of this is coming to us in real time on Twitter, which is to me, my favorite part of this entire story, because the utilization of the platform dramatically spiked. Uh, it is arguably the best source to get real time news, whether it's from your traditional media outlets and or subject matter experts and people who are live local with their fingers on the pulse of whatever is happening. So that that takes us to April 10th. He then gets sued by shareholders for failing to publicly disclose his stake that was over and above the 5% required disclosure. Four days after his resignation or his non-commitment to, to the board on April 14th, he offers to buy Twitter for $43 billion, which equates to $54.20 per share, taking 100% of the company private, which is awesome, disclosed in an SEC filing. Hours later, talks about this at a live stream TED Talk. I don't know how many people watched it, but I know it was significant. April 15th, right? So now we're, we're into the weekend, a couple days before tax filing. The board announced their poison pill. So this was essentially a way for the Twitter board and current shareholders to dilute positions, issue more stock, effectually making Elon's stake less valuable, forcing him to buy more shares to maintain his same control and a, a tactic that is normally a defensive tactic in these sorts of cases when you have a an LBO, a leveraged buyout that is is coming on by a very aggressive shareholder. You had a comment. Sorry, I was I'm just rolling through the saga I, here in the timeline. Yeah, I love it. So many questions here and, and it, it seems so cut and dry and it, it's a it's a moot point right now, but I am really curious did he know that he was not ultimately going to take a stake on the Twitter board of directors when he said, hey, I'm buying 9.2% and I'm going to? Did he know? It, you know? Is that important? I think it is. And I think it's important because it, it leads us into his thinking. Is he more methodical maybe than we give him credit for? Clearly, the guy's a genius, right? Love him or hate him. He, he's a thinker. And he's a good businessman, right? As well as an engineer and, and, and those kinds of things. But And a rocket he, scientist. <laughs> yeah, right, literally a rocket scientist, right? But if he, if he knew, and this was part of the plan, that if he knew that he was ultimately going to make a bid to buy Twitter, was that smart to buy a 9.2% stake, feel out the waters first, see what public sentiment and reaction would be to him owning a 10% share and then being on the board of directors? Or is he the guy in his castle with the gargoyles at the end of the driveway, petting his you know, furry cat, <laughs> like the, uh, the Bond villain going, if they won't let me have 10% and be on the board of directors, then I will buy the whole company, right? Well, they, and, offered, they offered him the board seat and he, he declined it. That, but that's what I mean. Was that, was that a dog and pony show or was that by design? Right, like who, who knows? He, because did, the, think about the the amount of conversations, right? So you, you you take a majority stake in that, and a lot of this, at least publicly, has been over this idea of free speech. It's been a little bit politically weaponized in that regards, but I think very simply, Elon said, "Hey." 
I think there can be a better use and when you can unlock more value, right? Because first and foremost, I think he's just a businessman and he's buying the company for a lower valuation than where it was just one year ago. And the reach of this platform and the potentials and the capabilities platform is massive. And you don't, you don't have Jack Dorsey really involved anymore, right? The founder of right. Twitter has really been out of the picture. He's been in his crypto and NFT world now for a couple of years. And you get such an influential person who understands business and culture the way that Elon Musk does. So I think his genuine belief is I've got a vision for where this, this thing can go. I think I can get it in here and, you know, steal this at 43, $44 billion, unlock some value. You're going to piss some people off. You're going to make some people happy. That's okay. That's normal in any sort of environment where change is happening. But ultimately I've, I think he sees this as a catalyst that's going to add more value as an investment to him. Also as a fail safe, I mean, think about just the, having the platform and the reach. Imagine, all of a sudden, when you're on Twitter, you were getting, you're scrolling through ads and sponsored ads. And imagine every one of those ads was for a Tesla or for a ride on a SpaceX rocket to Mars, right? Like you would have that ability if you're a privately owned company. Well, and that's, the, that's, that's the public's fear though, Andrew, right? Is that he's going to use this as a platform for not only his businesses, but his political ideals. Now, I, I don't think that fear is unfounded in some way because the profitability of Twitter, I don't think is a concern for him. I, I do think he is, I don't want to call him a humanitarian, but I, but I, I think his interests he's an, lie. He's an idealist to some extent. Yeah. Yeah. Good word. Right. He's an idealist in a sense that he is not the richest man in the world because that, that was his goal, right? Like, let's just, get more money and more money and more money. And he was not, an, he's not an investor. He's an innovator, right? The Warren Buffetts and the, you know, and the, you know, Ackman's and all that of the world, those guys are, are for profit. I do truly believe that Elon wants to make a difference. Now, whether or not I agree with his difference remains to be his, you know, the way he wants to make a difference or how he wants to make a difference. That's, that's not the point, right? We're, we're trying to hold an objective conversation here about, what are going to be the cultural and financial aspects of an individual taking this huge social media platform private? We just don't know, right? We, uh, we just well, don't know what's going to happen. Right. My take on this would be that today, much of the social media platforms you have, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, TikTok, they all just kind of get lumped in as being one, like, hey, they all operate in this way. They're, they're biased in this way. So you're just looking at a, a figure who can come in and say, hey, we're just gonna do things different than other social media platforms. And here, here's the way that we're gonna do it. And even though you're gonna have some discord in that, He's changing it. He's, he's made it. This is now not lumped in with every social media company that's out there. It's like, you know, all these social media companies, they got their own thing, but they all kind of operate this way. And then you got Twitter. Twitter's a little bit different because Elon's a little bit different and that's how it's operating. Now, does that prove to be financially successful? Does he bring this back to the public market years later at, you know, a hundred billion dollar valuation? I, I don't know. Well, they, they lost a lot of, what do you call them? Tweeters? Listeners, viewers, whatever. Users. They, 
used, there you go. They, <laughs> they lost a lot of users the second that he announced that he was going to buy it, right? They lost a ton of users. Now, that's what that's what the headline said. That's what the second paragraph said. Sure. I didn't read I didn't read down to the seventh paragraph. I guarantee you, Andrew, that a million people that had gotten off Twitter because of political reasons got back on. Sure. Think thinking that it would change back into something that they desired, you know? Yeah. So I'm not on it. To, to, I'm not to on finish, it. I don't care. <laughs> to finish kind of that that saga, the you know, he breaks down middle of April, breaks down how he's going to get funding. There seems to be a, an agreement on deal terms. Just most recently, and this comes from Barron's just this past weekend, it has now been announced that he is raising some investor capital from a small group, including people like Larry Ellison and Fidelity Management and Research, uh, Qatar's Sovereign Fund, Binance, which is a cryptocurrency platform. So the good news for Elon and more importantly, Tesla investors is he's not going to have to tap into all of his Tesla capital, forcing stock sales, potentially driving prices down, which we saw last year when he had to sell stock because of taxes and investing periods ending and things like that. And it, it, it definitely impacted the stock because he's such a large shareholder. So yeah, but, but let's, let's, let's segue the first two articles, Andrew, the fed raises interest rates monetary policy move was it significant enough to justify a change in the stock market elon musk sells x number of i think it was five billion dollars was his tax bill mm -hmm. for for that so he had to sell some shares of tesla well but who cares right he sold them to somebody else presumably not at a super low price or a 20% discount right somebody else beside elon bought those shares the number of shares outstanding didn't change but the perception is hey this guy owns most of this company and if he's selling some of the company there must be something wrong with the fundamentals of the company not true just not true at all right so sure. the the selling of tesla stock based on the owner of Tesla, the, the majority shareholder, let's call him, the majority share, based on that is, I don't want to say foolish, but it's, it's, it's not economically sound investing. Let's, uh, let's segue from Elon, because I could probably spend all day on Elon. Let's close today. Only three articles today, three topics, uh, which is good. And this was... this was a feel-good moment for me. So you have Warren Buffett, and at 91 years old, the ripe age of 91, this is this comes from CNBC, but I want to talk about kind of the bigger thing that was going on here. So Warren Buffett, they just had their annual shareholders meeting in Omaha, Nebraska for Berkshire Hathaway. This is an event, right? So not many companies can garner sort of the fanfare that the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting in a town like Omaha, Nebraska has over the decades. And in more recent years, meaning let's say the last 20 years, this has become attractive for investors far and wide who just want to hear and soak up the comments of what Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger are going to talk about in predictions on the economy, things that they're doing internally, all of the sage wisdom and, and principles for obvious reasons, COVID pandemic related, they have not had their, their annual shareholders meetings. So 2022, they are back live and, and in action. So this, this article from CNBC title says when 
inflation is high, Warren Buffett says the best thing you can do is be exceptionally good at something. And what a great way to just put a bow on today's episode, because I think that this is such an important and critical message. So there's all these obvious fears we've been talking about, right? Inflation and gas and groceries. and Oh my gosh. And what are we going to do in recessions and housing prices? And Warren Buffett comes out and this is, by the way, interesting. He said the same exact thing or, you know, the same exact sentiment back in 2009. And his quote is said, the best thing you can do is be exceptionally good at something. He was mentioning things like professionals, like doctors and lawyers, people are going to give you some of what they produce in exchange for what you deliver. What does that mean? That is basic economics, right? So I'm going to trade you something of value for what, what value you deliver to me. So go back prior to fiat currency and just your barter and exchange world, right? So it's like, I'm a hunter, you're a gatherer. I'll trade you the, the deer I caught for the beans you grew. And this type of idea that there is, in a, like, I can't do everything, but I'm going to be really good at my thing. I'm going to invest in being the best possible version of myself. And as I do that, my my value in society becomes greater and greater. And in today's world, that's translated to the ability to generate more income. So every single person that I talk to, and we deal with a lot of really young investors, the biggest investment that you can always make is in in yourself, mainly because figuring out through your 20s, your 30s, and even into your 40s, how to continue to increase your ability to produce income, to generate and receive money in exchange for the value that you produce. So it doesn't just have to be time for money, but I always think of it in, in the context of value for money. Meaning why do some people get paid $20 an hour and some people get paid, you know, some lawyers bill out at $1,000 an hour because they're, they're, the value of their time is so much greater. What they provide to society, to their marketplace, to people, there are willing participants who said, yep, I'm going to pay you $1,000 for that one hour meeting. So I just thought that that in the wake of all we're talking about and in a wake of uncertainty and what's going on. And we've got midterm elections this year and Russia and Ukraine, which we haven't heard about in a few weeks, but is still happening. <laughs> like this, this yeah. is still going on. What can we do? You focus internally, focus on the things that bring you the most joy, the most happiness, focus on the things that you are good at and figure out how you can translate that to being of service to others. Because when you can be of service to others, what inevitably happens in the marketplace is you're compensated for that. And the better you are at whatever it is you do, the more compensation you will receive. I love it, Andrew. And just for a second, I'm going to ruin it and then bring us, bring us back to kind of a confirmation bias with it. Warren Buffett, one of the world's leading investors of all time, where we've come to in our knowledge of those people that we look up to in terms of financial advice, we've come to this place of aesthetics of, hey, this guy looks like our grandpa, right? He talks really well. Uh, you know, his, his spoken word, certainly at the annual shareholders meeting, people hang on his every word. He is the Oracle of Omaha, right? We sure. even gave him this, this godly nickname. The fact is, 
he's patronizing a little bit in a in a Tony Robbins finance kind of way, meaning that he has said many times in the past, you got to pour over those financial statements. That's how he makes his investment decisions. Okay. But guess what? Just like all the other articles we've been talking about them from the feed, people don't want to hear this crap. People don't want to hear, hey, you know what? You got to learn how to read a balance sheet. You got to learn how that reflects or how the income statement coincides with that. What is cash and cash equivalents on hand for a company? What's the debt to equity ratio? What does that mean? How do you compare two companies' debt to equity? Nobody wants to dig into that. So Warren Buffett knows that, and he knows that if he goes on CNBC and starts talking about debt to equity ratios of Verizon or Visa versus MasterCard, like we were talking about a few episodes ago, he's losing you. He loses you. So what does he do? He says he's got the quaint little grandpa stories, right? He's 91. He goes to McDonald's every morning, right? And basically his message here, Andrew, is be good at what you do and work hard. My dad told me that, right? Like it's, it, that's no, it's not a revelation. It is always good to be reminded of these tenets of a, of a good life. Uh, and as it relates to investing though, I think he's deferred the clinical, uh, numerical analysis of how to really be profitable and gone instead with, Hey, People are going to at least listen and maybe act appropriately with the right attitude if I can give them these platitudes of feeling good. Uh, agree to disagree because we <laughs> literally just said this on the communication episode that these principles, while very simple, and yes, I'm sure your dad and many dads across America have told their sons, be honest, work hard, earn a good living, all that good grandpa, fatherly type advice. Right. While it's simple, it's not easy. And it's why we need to, to continue to be reminded from influential figures like him when we can get so distracted in our world. Because a, a lot of times the balance sheets and the debt to equity ratios and all the, the technical stuff, in my opinion, can be a distraction. I don't care what the difference between Visa and MasterCard is. I'm investing in the index anyway. <laughs> like I'm just putting my money in an index and I'm, I'm focusing on not all the differences between every micro minutia, you know, variable in a company, but how I can help people make better financial decisions, uh, how I can help people sort and organize their lives, which in turn, because I'm really good at that, in turn impacts my own personal income, which I figure out, okay, I'm going to save a certain amount. I'm going to invest a certain amount. I'm going to spend a certain amount and I'm going to use this to live and so on and so forth. And I continue to make, and you've known this about me my entire career, my entire life, like continue to make investments in yourself. How can I be a better provider of service to my clients, to my potential consumer base and not get caught up in all the distractions, but focus on the things that make me unique and bring me a lot of happiness and fulfillment in, in what I get to do. And, 100% agree and the rest already. of that will, yeah. will sort itself out. Yeah. Well, that's, that's what I think that's agree to disagree on that because I, I think agree a hundred percent we need to be better people. We need to always work on ourselves, uh, constantly achieving and striving for better for ourselves and also being happy with where we are. But I think it's just, it's a, it's a little misleading to, to use these phrases like I've used several times of, Hey, when there's blood on the streets, you, that's when you buy. It's so vague and it's, it's, 
again, it's just a patronizing statement from the Oracle of Omaha because he's not going to tell you, he's not going to sit down and get into with the general public how to compare debt to equity ratios and in which sectors those can be damaging and what's, you know, 1.2 and 1.3, what's the difference between those two and, and, and is it significant enough? Is it a buy? Is it a hold? Is it a sell? He's not going to get into that because the individual investor that's listening to him doesn't want to hear it. They don't want to do that. We want to hear the feel good. Hey, but, but this is, this is where I disagree, Andrew. You mentioned previous to fiat currency, these kind of feel good ideals. We're we're not trading beaver pelts anymore, right? We don't need corn from our neighbor. We need dollar bills, right? So, 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 I'm just gonna I'm just gonna rain on your parade for a second, and then we'll close it out at at 45 minutes for from the feed episode. Uh, but you're wrong. It, it is not he who is who is giving some patronizing statements. He spoke for a weekend, and if right. you probably know that someday they'll turn it into a book, he issues an annual shareholder letter that is very in depth, very complex, and is looked to. For people have built entire hedge funds off of the strategies that can be taken from his and Charlie Munger's writings on on what is in these these letters. On a CNBC.com article, this is the headline you get and this is the quote that you get. But right. that's not that's not Warren Buffett being patronizing. That's just simply what was taken out of this long event, the the thousands of words spoken, the breakout sessions, and the 70-page document that was thoughtfully and carefully curated so that you and I and anybody who needs access to it, I just went to the website right now. You can download it in 30 seconds. Anybody can do it. And, yeah, so, Andrew, and then you have to take I, that information, extract it, and, and act on it. Andrew, I digress. You're right about that. God, I love but those it, but, words. Oh, but, but, but with two T's. No, but it doesn't nullify the, I, the same idea, right? Whether it's Warren Buffett himself doing it on purpose or whether it was the person that penned this article on CNBC, it's, it's getting eyes and ears on the article not with valid investment practices, right? Yes, he probably talked about that at length in detail all weekend long, right? Good point. You want to end it there? Come on, you should end it there. We're we're (laughs) ending. Listen, that's another episode from the feed, Dollars and Sensibilities. Bill and Andrew, every single Friday, join us on your favorite streaming platform. Do us a favor, like, subscribe, share this with a friend, sign up for the newsletters, do all the actions that, that help us out to get this message to more people. We'll see you next time. For Dollar Sensibility, I'm Andrew. And Bill, be good humans. Be good humans. Thank you for listening to the Dollars and Sensibility podcast. Be sure to hit the subscribe button so that you can join us for each and every episode. Follow us on social media at WIS Advisors and be sure to check out our website at wisadvisors.com. Tune in for the next step on the bridge between dollars and the mind of the sensible investor. Thanks for listening. Bill McBride and Andrew Martz are investment advisor representatives and registered representatives with Western International Securities Incorporated. All the opinions expressed by Andrew, Bill and all podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Western International Securities. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Western International Securities may maintain positions discussed in this podcast.